from the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism. Welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. It's something that's rarely discussed, but interacts with some really core liberal values like gender and autonomy. It deserves the full weight of the scrutiny of the community and the medical community. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and today I think we truly have a groundbreaking conversation. I, I want to, all right, I'll say it. It's a cutting edge conversation, and that's that's a little bit of a, uh, of a pun intended, but last joke, very serious from now on, mostly. I'm talking about the ancient commandment of circumcision, the, um, the tradition of Brit Milah, um, which, which symbolizes the, the covenant uh, between God and, and, and the Jewish people. And today we have two guests. We have communication strategist Max Buckler, who is the author of the Evolve essay, Be Honest About the Bris, A Jewish Call for Greater Integrity, and Max has been very active and vocal on, on this issue. And we've also have, as a, as a treat, best-selling author, Gary Steingart, the novelist and memoirist, journalist, whose article has been in a little publication you might have heard of called The New Yorker, which caused quite a stir. The article was called A Botched Circumcision and Its Aftermath, which details exactly that how his circumcision as a seven-year-old immigrant from the Soviet Union went wrong medically and how, as a middle-aged man, complications resurfaced that left him in agony and, and put much of his life on hold. Incidentally, uh, Max Buckler is connected to Gary because he, Max reached out to Gary after Gary had his uh, New Yorker piece that got a lot of attention, reached out to him on social media. You can actually make connections for real on social media. So there you go. So this, this, this conversation, we really look at circumcision from a couple of different angles. Max and Gary come with very different perspectives. Both Max and Gary try to walk a fine line in saying they're not, they're not advocating against it. They're, um, they're asking people to really think about it and examine all the facts. Um, it seems to me in, in, in Max's case, at least personally, he, he might be advocating against it, but, but um, anyway, it's, it's really, it's really a discussion from the point of view of two critics of circumcision and, and, and I think critics of the idea that this is something that, that Jews, even liberal Jews do without, without thinking about it too much. So just to make it, the, things clear, this podcast, the Evolve Project and Reconstructing Judaism in general are not taking a position against or, or even for circumcision. When it comes to Jewish ritual and communal behavior, we think that no conversation should be off the table. And we see this episode and this series, because it's part one of two, as fitting perfectly with Evolve's mission of bringing new, nuanced conversations on topics that matter to Jews and those who care about them. So next month, we'll be interviewing a Moyle, Rabbi Kevin Bernstein, who will offer a different take on what we're going to hear today. 
So now comes the part where I tell you this, this episode can be, can be tough to listen to at times, somewhat graphic, maybe not as graphic as the, um, as the Gary's New Yorker article itself, but, but not easy subject matter. So be warned, especially if you've had complications from a circumcision, it might be a particularly difficult listen. And at about the 25 minute mark, Gary describes a racist speech given to the American Medical Association in the 1950s, arguing in favor of circumcision. The speech that Gary quotes from or paraphrases contains a racial slur. There's there's a there's a point to this that he's making, but I just wanted to give a a heads up that it's that it's there. As a reminder, all Evolve essays are available to read for free at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And you can find essays on a range of topics uh, really important to Jewish uh, life right now. The environment, racism, Israel, Palestine, gender. That's evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Okay, one final content warning, I promise. Um, There's a little bit of a digression in here that takes about five minutes about the uh, an aspect of circumcision that is practiced within certain orthodox communities it's called i believe if i'm pronouncing it correctly mitzitza bepe and just just for a definition it's a practice in which a moil uses oral suction to remove blood from an infant's circumcision wound and there've been news reports especially in, in new york state of this practice leading to serious medical complications in, in, in whatever number of cases. Um, and, and it's found its way into the political arena and our guests go back and forth on the air over whether it is still legal in New York. And as far as I can tell, it, it is still legal with, with certain conditions. So I'm going to, we're going to post um, information from the New York city department of health uh, about, about this. Um, but this is not the focus of the show. And this is, pretty uncommon outside certain Orthodox communities. So it's not really even the point of the show, but it's related and and we're leaving it in. Um, Okay, let's get to the main event. Let's get to our guests. Max Buckler, head strategic initiatives of Bruchim, which advocates for inclusion in Jewish communities for those who forego circumcision. It's a new nonprofit that's, that's been covered in, in the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. We can post that article in the show notes. Max, in his professional life, is a strategic consultant for startups with a focus on marketing and digital communications. He's, he's a bit of a jack of all trades. He's an experienced songwriter, Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor. We did not talk about that. Maybe next podcast. And a game designer. He currently lives in Hong Kong with his wife, Charlene, who is a member of the extended Bruchim team. And uh, Max and Charlene did a great interview on on circumcision with uh, the folks at Judaism Unbound. If you want to check that interview out, we'll we'll post that link as well. And we've got Gary Steingart. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the memoir, Little Failure, which which covers a lot of his time uh, growing up in Queens. Um, there was the pandemic novel that recently published Our Country Friends, and I'll just name them all. Uh, he's published uh, the novels Lake Success, Super Sad True Love Story, Absurdistan, and his debut, The Russian Debutante's Handbook. 
He's also, and folks may know him this way, as a is a literary consultant to the HBO hit Succession. For two decades, his journalism has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Travel and Leisure. I recall he he did some post uh, post 9-11 writing that 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 lifted my spirit in difficult times. And a uh, little known fact, or, or I guess a lot known fact, he's one of the literature's most prolific and generous blurbers. And if you listen all the way to the end, you can hear me request a blurb for my hypothetical non-existent novel. So um, that's a reason to listen to the end. There is so much more I can say, but better let the guests speak for themselves. So Max Buckler, Gary Steingart, welcome to the Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations podcast. Thanks a lot. Happy to be on. Thanks. Great to be here. Gary is coming to us from New York City and Max from the beautiful city of Hong Kong. So this is a global, uh, global conversation. And we're here to talk about circumcision, uh, Brit Mila, which um, I mean, I'll just say from the outset, I, I don't know that, you know, either of you have yet convinced me that we should get rid of it. But but you've really got me and I think a lot of other people think about it, maybe maybe for the first time. Um so I just want to ask, I mean, each of you, we'll get into it, is coming from a very different perspective, from a, a different story, but you've each written and talked publicly about, about circumcision, arguing that, you know, we should at least rethink it and, and make, make space for people who and families who choose not to do it. So Max, maybe, maybe I'll start, I'll start with you because it's, it's late in the evening for you. Um, I mean, can you just get, give us a sense? I mean, I know you're 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 not you're not a parent yet, but you're married. You, you you're you're very invested in Jewish life. Why this is something you've not only been thinking about, but really become an an, an activist on? Um, what 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 got you what got you started on 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 thinking of circumcision beyond just you know a Seinfeld punchline? Mm. Right. So I come from uh, the conservative movement. That's where I got my first Jewish education. That's where I was raised. Um, so obviously an area with a pretty heavy amount of Jewish education, but also a progressive area. Um, and the reason this issue has uh, become kind of a sticking point for me is that it's something that's rarely discussed, but interacts with some really core uh, progressive issues. Um and the reason I titled my piece, Be Honest About the Bris, and wrote about the importance of having high integrity conversations uh, is because a lot of conversations in the Jewish community, especially the progressive community, uh, tend to be a little bit low integrity. Uh, people try and kind of casually dismiss this issue a little bit too often. And that's despite the fact that the ethical concerns at play are extremely serious. And as I mentioned, touch, you know, really core liberal values like gender and autonomy um, and continuation of tradition and kind of figuring out what things uh, we keep, what things we kind of modify. And something I'll mention even when we wrap up, but just now is that this is something that should always be scrutinized, you know, whether or not they do this for another thousand years at every point the, you know, the, the kinds of concepts that this touches should just really always be up for analysis and always be, always be checked out. So it's, it's healthy and, and smart to always keep an eye on it anyway, no matter where you land on it. And Gary, I believe you first wrote about sort of the bot circumcision in your in your memoir, Little Failure, where it was it was kind of presented in one of a of a series of sort of un 
unhappy encounters with with Judaism, with American Judaism, and and then you you really got a lot of people thinking and talking about it with your New Yorker essay from the past year, where where you you described some some real, you know, a real physical emotional nightmare. I guess I guess before I even ask like what made you want to write about this i mean i know you're a writer but you so that's what you do but i i, I just want to ask from a human perspective how are you how are you doing it seemed like you had some pretty awful moments not not that long ago yeah thank you so much for asking um so right now i'm not in constant pain as i was that's uh good the result of the uh, botched circumcision i would say now it's instead of just pain it's uh, more of a kind of sensory issue. So I would say about four days out of the week, I, there's a signal still being sent from, the, uh, from a part of the penis uh, that is sort of saying, you know, look out, something's happening, but it's, not, it's no longer pain. It's, and in fact, now I'm, I'm on a whole battery of drugs, um, tricyclic antidepressants, it was some applied as a cream to a part of the penis that, um, try to disconnect the signal from the spinal column, which then gets trans translated to the brain. So I think this will be a lifetime issue. Um, I don't think it will ever go away, but I think uh, I'm no longer, you know, for about a year, I was almost entirely immobilized. I, any movement I took uh, would result in horrific pain. So I was pretty much bedridden. Uh, you know, I had to wear this, uh, my wife called it like an Elizabethan collar, you know, the dogs wear. Mm. Uh, I had to wear that around the glands of the penis at all times. And it was tied together by all these bandages and stuff. Uh, and I was taking all these much more robust um, uh, nerve pain drugs that caused me to hallucinate. So I was trying to finish a novel at the time in which a character actually hallucinates. And I would spend my whole morning hallucinating from these drugs. Um, and then I would write that stuff. So, you know, so for me, this was easily the first experience I've ever had with being so depressed that I was, I was suicidal. I just couldn't understand how I would continue living with this, how I could continue to be a father or, a, or certainly a husband, because obviously sexual activity was out of the question. Um, and this was all the result of a circumcision that had happened when I was seven, had come from uh, Leningrad, uh, and my parents fell in with some Hasids or Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews who said, you know, you have to have this done. Uh, it was done, it was botched. Uh, and then 40 years later, it all kind of fell apart again after a, a piece of hair got stuck in the resulting, uh, you know, desire. I always compared it in, in other books. It looked like the bombing of Dresden, you know, the whole skin was so eviscerated. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, I don't want to talk too much time here, but I, I would say that in researching that New Yorker piece, I kept running into other men who had had circumcisions, many not Jewish, you know, because others, other cultures do this too. And, and in America, we do this. Uh, pretty much as a medical procedure, or at least have, uh, who have also had unbelievable, you know, disasters with their circumcisions. Um, one person I didn't meet, but one person actually killed himself. Um, and several have had to have gender reassignment surgery, but all of them were incredibly, they were happy to talk to me, but they kept saying one thing, which is please don't put my name down because it's such a shameful thing. And there was one gentleman who said, please don't put my country down country I'm from. He's from a country of 150 million people, and he was afraid that somebody would find out. So what I realized is that, you know, that this happens quite a bit. This isn't an isolated case. Uh, it's just that some men suffer their entire lives. Um, others, you know, um, others will only talk about it with their partners, if that. And some 
just end up, you know, either drinking themselves to death or doing or some form of self-harm that, 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 that takes them out of the picture. So, you know, I thought that's why I wanted to write something so personal for the New Yorker. I thought, you know, and I didn't even come out saying, hey, let's not do this anymore. I'm just right, saying, right. you need to see what, what's possible because nobody is going to talk about this. And I actually wanted to add on there uh, that when I first started just exploring this conversation without even before my initial research phase and consulting experts, uh, just having conversations with friends, I was stunned when just in the first level of this, several friends came and told me that their child or a sibling or family member had a botched decision. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, I was, I was at a dinner a couple of months ago, post COVID and everyone at the table, there were maybe 10 people. This was a very posh dinner. So we're not, you know, um, and, and, and uh, mostly not even Jewish people. And everyone had a botched circumcision story to tell at that dinner. I mean, the rates, yeah. the rates are estimated from what, from one to 10% that we know of. And, and obviously, so, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but that's still a lot given the sensitivity of this organ. That's a lot of stuff to mess up, you know. And it's hard to measure because the reality is that every circumcision is actually different. They come from practitioners with different methods. Um, and so like the standard for what's going to count as a botch um, is actually variable. But uh, yeah, you know, there are those these stories are out there. I'm always surprised when I talk to rabbis or other people who say, oh, I've never heard of, a, of anyone never having heard a problem. Also, when I, I, I found out in the first weeks of just talking about this, I just started talking about it with my friends and problems came straight to me. And my thought on that is when you present to someone who's safe to listen, then mm -hmm. those stories are out there. But if you if people perceive that they're going to be shamed or that this is going to be a difficult conversation, then those stories really tend not to come out. Right, and I would add to that also that there's an element of masculinity that's involved here because almost all the men I talked to, that was the reason they didn't want to talk about it. You know, if they if they'd had a, you know, an amputated thumb, okay, they would, you know, <laughs> oh, I lost my thumb in a war, great. But this is like something that they were so ashamed about. And it was very interesting because one of the people I talked about, and I quoted him in that New Yorker piece, he actually lives not far from me upstate, he was saying something that really registered with me that when he was growing up, because his penis was so deformed, he thought himself of himself as belonging to a kind of third gender, you know, because he didn't feel himself fully male either, but he had to represent as a male all the time. That's exactly how I felt. And I remember watching that film, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Do you remember that when the killer, you know, puts his penis between his legs and kind of dances around like that. I would sort of do that as a kid because I didn't want to look at that thing. And I was always imagining what it would be like not to have this, you know, this, this organ that showed not just my history, but sort of the, the shame of what I had gone through. I didn't think Buff Buffalo Bill was, I think that was his name, was, was coming into this. Buffalo Bill, yeah. <laughs> um, so before we go further, I think I wanted both your takes on this. Do you do you see infant circumcision, infant Brit Milah as something different in kind from, from doing this to, to a seven-year-old? I mean, like Gary was sort of victimized twice, first by the Soviet government, which this, this couldn't happen as an infant, and then by the Orthodox, who really pressured his family into doing this. And I guess, I guess by the doctor, by or whoever performed it by 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 screwing it up. So I, I wonder like. Are we talking, are you, are you two talking about the same thing? Or are you talking about apples and oranges? Have, have, have you two discussed this? So that's, I'm, I'm curious um, what, what your thoughts are on that. I think uh, Gary, I'd start with that one because uh, most circumcisions are um, 
infant as we know, but uh, in our, in our community. So in our community. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've learned actually is that um, the condition that I, that was done by, so a lot of circumcisions that are poorly performed, there's sort of two possibilities uh, too much of the foreskin is taken away or not enough of the foreskin is taken away. Uh, in my case, not enough was taken away, but also the healing was done very improperly. In fact, there was an infection right after the circumcision was performed, and that caused the condition called a skin bridge, where there is an extraneous clump of skin. Here, it was between uh, connecting the glands and the, I guess, the, the end of the frenulum, so about mid-shaft. And what happened there was, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up when we're talking about infant is, that that condition I found that does happen quite a bit with uh, circumcisions performed on infants. So it's not just people who are seven year olds who go through what I went through. Um, these kids, some some of them grow up with that uh, you know that condition all along. So um, yes, I would say in general, as doctors have told me, the sooner you perform any kind of operation like this, probably the better. Um, you certainly don't you know there there is there there are added complications in doing it for you know a forty year old or so, which which people do obviously. Um, but I think that it also happens when you're younger. Uh, so obviously better to do it when you're younger from a medical standpoint, but still, you know, the, the same kinds of problems crop up even when, it, when you perform it on an infant. Yeah, there's, there's reasonable dif- disagreement actually about when it is safer. Um, I mean, for example, uh, the U.S. has exported circumcision to certain regions uh, in Africa uh, for various reasons. And there, as of 2020, they're not allowed to perform them on infants anymore since they discovered the opposite was true they had more complications in child than adult but but as as i said there's disagreement about this um but i think the the important thing uh for people listening right now is that um botches if if we're taking that angle are possible at all times um so from that perspective i wouldn't say there's a huge difference so maybe a question with two sides of the same coin on on the one level we have this I mean, if we're if we're talking about Brit Milah, we have this um, this ceremony that's that's performed for centuries and millennia, and kind of links, you know, does the whole linking of generations thing. And and most liberal, you know, non Orthodox Jews do it because you know their parents and grandparents have done it, not not because God God told them to do it. So, I guess on the one hand, it's the why mess with that. On on the other, I'm really curious why you think this this is one thing that for the most part although it's starting to change non-orthodox jews haven't really challenged when they've challenged basically every everything else so um i know that's two questions but they seemed they seemed very very related to me so um wondering um where where you two would take that that's a huge question. There's so much, there's actually so much to unpack in this issue. And, and you're right that it's something that has had some uniformity between different movements, completely unaffiliated Jews, uh, religious Jews. Um, and we could theorize about all kinds of ways that, uh, that that's possible. But um, one thing I did want to comment on is that what we can't ignore is that this has also gone in tandem in the United States with a medicalized uh, propensity for circumcision. So people have, uh, you know, from the, from the perspective that certain religious authorities take, which is like, oh, look at how well this is held up in, in modernity in the Jewish community. That's also extremely closely linked to the American phenomenon. 
So I just wanted to mention that first. Yeah, no, I mean, off of that, it's, it's fascinating. I've been doing some research on this for, for, I think I want to expand this project a little bit. And it's like, you know, in, in some weird way, uh, uh, Jews who obviously wanted to assimilate into America, um, they, they, this, the, the Jewish custom of circumcision really dovetailed with uh, all this 19th century stuff that was happening in England and then in America, where circumcision became kind of, a, I don't know, like a strange... Anglo-Puritan um, hygienic slash morality issue. So uh, doctors, I mean, at one point, doctors were circumcising all of the people in the, uh, I guess it was then called the, you know, the Asylum for Lunatics uh, off Roosevelt Island. They thought that would cure them, quote unquote, of their lunacy. So they just circumcised that whole asylum. And obviously all you had was some very angry, mentally ill people at the end of that. And they tried it for everything. It was supposed to be the cure for everything, the cure for masturbation. <laughs> Ask Philip Roth about how well that worked out, right? Uh, you know, there was- Epilepsy. Epilepsy. Got epilepsy in there, HPV <laughs> for the partner, sexual partner. I mean, every 10 years, there's something new that, you know, that, that circumcision is supposed to cure. So it, it really dovetailed with that. In fact, I was reading some speech to the American Medical Association in the 50s. And they were talking about, because obviously racism has to creep into this if it's America, they were talking about the, the difference between, I think it was like studious Jews uh, who were circumcised and promiscuous Negroes who were not circumcised, you know? So it became a kind of strange moral hygienic issue and it worked in favor of Jews who were like, hey, you know, we've been doing this for 5,000 years. So uh, in terms of assimilation, it made perfect sense. Uh, but now when you begin to unpack it and look into reasons why it became so prevalent here, um, and you look, start to look at all the medical issues, it, there really doesn't, there's no sense. If you compare, for example, um, I guess Europe is comparable in terms of, you know, average income and medical and development of the medical system. Um, there, there's mostly not, no circumcisions take place, very few circumcisions except for religious reasons. And male penile health is just as good and robust over there. In fact, in some, by some measurements, it's even better. So my first thing that I always say is, obviously I'm interested in addressing the Jewish community, but my, the first thing I would say is if you don't come from a tradition uh, that has circumcision, this really is not much, it's, it's kind of a no brainer, you know, the, don't, don't do it, you know. Then uh, there's other considerations such as the ones we're talking about on this podcast. But if you're not a religious person, uh, then there's really no reason to, to consider this for your point. Um, Gary, you mentioned Philip Roth. So, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's so much to just go with there, but, but um, I think, You've talked. Max has talked about this too. I mean, this has been such a a trope in in Jewish humor from from the Borscht Bell to to Philip to Philip Roth from from Portnoy to Sabbath Theater to you know Woody Allen Seinfeld. It's just I don't know the the circumcision joke mm. is just is just a trope and and it always gets it always gets it always gets laughs and and I mean Gary, I think I mean whether you agree with this or not, others have described you in, at times as a humorist and, and, and satirist. Um, like, what do you, what do you make of this? I, I almost feel like you're, you're, you're laughing at the joke, but you're saying, Hey, this isn't, yeah. this isn't only a joke or, or we're joking because we're not, there's something scary or serious. We're not facing. Look, I, I mean, uh, all Jewish humor to me is like sort of humor from the edge of the grave. We're laughing because, it's the only way we can process something that's so horrific and insane as much of our history has been. Um, you know, there's, after I, I had my piece in the New Yorker, all these moils, of course, got very angry on the, on the you know, on the, on the right. And there's one moil, I looked up his Instagram and he has this baby screaming and he's wearing a t-shirt that says, you know, it's my bris and I'll cry if I want to, you know, and that's sort of the, 
the way we've approached it. I laughed at that. I mean, I have to admit. Uh, yeah, I see that you, well, that's the, that's the natural tendency is to just say, ah, well, you know. But we know from, you know, scientific studies, medical studies have now shown that obviously it's a huge bit of trauma on the part of the child. The child, many children actually have trouble latching on to their mother's breasts after, after this is performed. I don't know what the physiological or psychological aspect of that is, but I think it's a feeling that you, when even a child that's, you know, eight days old has no longer feels safe, even among caregivers. I, I've just been, you know, talking about this with my own shrink as, as Jews do. And, you know, and I've been feeling that that was really the first betrayal. I was already seven, so I was much more cognizant. But after that, I never really trusted my parents. Like, I was bullied in school. I never went to them for advice. You know, it was like, what are they going to do? You know, circumcise me again? Like, there's no, there was no level of trust left. And I think that's very important. And I think studies have showed that that kind of, you know, people say, well, the, the nervous system or the brain of the eight, of the eight-year-old child is not fully developed. It's way more developed than we think. Um, so... But the humor, of course, we're trying to make fun of this. Look, I mean, you know, I've written in, in books like Absurdistan. I've, I've written, you know, the, somebody starts a, a Holocaust museum. There's a whole thing that goes on there, which is, you know, so I, 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 I poke fun at, at, at sort of the, the way that's been monetized or used, you know, in a certain way. I think all of our tragedies, we look at it with, often with a satirical or comic eye because it's the only way we can deal with the enormity and absurdity of what we've dealt with. But I also realized that I've been writing about the circumcision from the very first novel I've written, even when I didn't think about it, even before the latest collapse of my penis happened, it's always been this far away from my consciousness. It's always been circulating because it is this feeling of the first betrayal, the first uh, time when I realized that I was the only person I could count upon in the end. And I couldn't count on my parents and I certainly couldn't count on the organized Jewish community. And that's another thing I think that, you know, if I hadn't, had these experiences, if I, you know, like many American Jews really discovered Judaism, let's say in college or, you know, liberal arts grad or something, I probably would have had a far closer connection to Judaism than I have now. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me that people, that people think of circumcision for males as like the experience for Jews, but at the same time, they won't heed the commandments that actually are beautiful and make so much sense in the over electronic world that we live in, like keeping the Sabbath, you know, I mean, that's a beautiful commandment that, if people actually did that, our lives would be changing. We would enter the kind of meditative state that, you know, that most non-Jews in living in America today will die for. But we don't do that. Instead, we cut a baby's penis. It's like, it's, it's so shocking that humor is sometimes the only way to approach it. Hi. If you're enjoying this interview, and I bet you are, well, maybe not enjoy, but if you're getting a lot out of this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. And if you're a new listener, welcome, Bruchim Habaim. Check out our back catalog of other groundbreaking conversations. And please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Those things really help other people find out about the show. It has something to do with algorithms and things I don't understand, but it works. All right, now back to our interview with Max Buckler and the novelist Gary Steingart. Max, you, you um, in your essay, you, you really focus a lot on, on the consent issue and, and the idea that this eight-day-old boy or even this seven-year-old boy is not, is not giving consent. And I guess I just want to ask, I mean, as a parent, I do hundreds of things without, without my child's consent. I give them 
you know, I give them vaccine, I take them to the doctor, I give them medicine. Like how, how is this different in kind from any of these other, you know, decisions we make on behalf of our child? That's an important question. And I know that it's one that a lot of people have in their minds. So I appreciate you asking. Um, and it's true that parenting is kind of uh, a very complicated ethical situation where, uh, you know, children are, are not autonomous. They can't, you know, when you're a baby, you can't consent to anything. It's all dependent on, uh, on what the parents do and what their decisions are. Um, that being said, it's also a strange point to bring up because this is not a normal situation. I mean, I wonder if we can apply that same mode of thinking to any other part of the body. You know, if, if it's one parent's right to amputate the foreskin, then is it another parent's right to amputate another body part? It's kind of what's going on there. Um, parenting is not an unlimited freedom. The, the, the reality is, even though parenting is a very powerful situation and, and the potential for abuse for power is immense there, um, it's still not the case in a liberal society that you could do anything just because they're a child. And, and another point I just wanted to make that, to me makes it very real here is that in most situations, when you put someone in a, a child in a risky position, like let's say just playing a sport, it's true that they can get hurt, but what do you think in that situation? You send them out, but you want them to come back in one piece. And in this situation, you're sending them out where the goal is not to come back in one piece. It's only successful if you don't. So I really resist the, the urge to classify this along other parenting decisions. It's not a normal parenting decision at all. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, uh, Max. And I, I mean, I would only add that, um, that you know, for, for, uh, for about a century, uh, American doctors have told parents that this is, that if you want to be a responsible parent, this is what you do. And they would always hold up some study that in the end never quite worked out. And they would say, you know, this is what responsible parenting is, is cutting the circumcision, is cutting the first mm -hmm. off. And I think, you know, as the, the American, uh, what is it, the Pediatric, Pediatricians uh, Association or- uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah, American Academy of Pediatrics has been very slowly backpedaling that. Um, the Canadian, uh, its Canadian equivalent has already said, we're not, we're not gonna say nothing anymore. <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think, you know, that, that the first part of this, and I know we are obviously talking, uh, you know, from a religious standpoint, but I think the very first part of this is the medical establishment letting go of this issue, because I think Jewish moms, and I, I, do, and I know obviously dads are as involved, but I, I know it's the moms who are often the most affected by circumcision, because when they hear that cry, Every single thing that has been there been hardwired for, every single DEFCON 5 warning is going off, and I think once their, their pediatricians are no longer telling them to do this, I think that, that it will start to recede in, in, in all communities, but, but in the Jewish community too, where obviously it's, there's, a, there's a, a, another basis for it. So I think we're at a turning point. It really does feel like a turning point at this, at this time, which is why, you know, when I published that article in the New Yorker, it was so wonderful. All these people started writing in Rabbis started writing in a thinking unit saying, you know, well, I'm not going to say don't do it, but I'm no longer going to push for it, you know, stuff like that. It's been really incredible. And, you know, again, I'm not here to say don't do it, you know, because that, that stuff never works. Anyway, I'm here just to say this is a possible outcome. Uh, medically, we're learning more and more about how little it does and how much harm it may cause on in ways that we don't know yet. So, you know, part of what I'm doing is just sort of 
I've been talking to John Hopkins University. They had me on um, in a panel with their doctors in Africa who are performing or have performed a lot of these circumcisions, often on, um, on adults or young adults, you know, and I'm not saying that they're entirely against the idea of stopping it too, because they believe in certain things about HIV. Uh, that is also, you know, it's, 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 it's out there to be argued over. But even for them, I think hearing that perspective was very helpful. And they're saying, oh, maybe we should do more aftercare. Maybe we should talk before that. You know, there's so many more things that can be done. Because again, you know, and I think we started off talking about this, like, this is the issue that no one dares speak its name, you know, because people are so embarrassed, or we immediately turn to the, oh, I got a schlong cut, you know. Uh, um, so, um, as much as I do see myself as a humorous person, this is something I want to keep working on in, in every aspect I can, because I see this from my own perspective. I see this from reading the diaries of a boy, of a young man in his 20s who killed himself, because um, the feeling that he had, which is one I completely identified with after my second fault, a botched operation, which he described as, he described having an operation where the eyelid was amputated from the eyeball and the eyeball does not have a, you know, and there's constant sensory touch with the eyeball. That's kind of what it felt like during my second botched procedure and possibly my first botched procedure when I was seven. This feeling that you can never be right again and that you will never know a moment where you're not getting that signal that something is wrong with one of the most sensitive parts of your body. So that happens to a lot of people. He was not able to continue living. Some, some of us do. Um, he was not, and his mother has just written a, a biography about him um, and, and also talking about everything that happened to him and how it basically destroyed their family. So it's something to keep, to consider, you know, definitely. Wow. There's, there's so many, so many ways I could, I could go. I was, I was, I was definitely surprised. I, I think it was in, in the New Yorker essay to read that, um, you know, Maimonides had taken time to think about whether or not men, men were enjoying sex less because of circumcision. And obviously he didn't, he didn't do surveys. He didn't, he didn't, you know, have medical, you know, modern med medicine at his disposal. But, but um, what, what does it tell us that, that, you know, a great sage was thinking about this. Um, and for him, it was a positive, but. Go ahead. I was just going to say my mind is not the only one to come to this conclusion either that it reduces uh, sexual pleasure. And I, I actually don't have a position on this, especially as someone who's uh, circumcised as an infant. Um, but uh, I think it's I think it's probably true, but it's so difficult to quantify the sexual experience. Um, but there are certainly several uh, prominent Jewish voices over over the ages who have discussed this and. You know, it's right there on Chabad.org. If you look at their characterization of, of circumcision, they make the claim still to this day. Um, I even had friends and rabbi friends in the progressive community in my first conversations who said, basically, Judaism requires some restriction of the tastes. Um, so that, that thought is out there, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, and... Uh, I don't think, though, that that's the reason why the whole community has done this over time. I think that that is a attempt at rationalizing and justifying what, what, is, what resists uh, being rationalized and justified. Um, and uh, I, so I don't usually take, take, to, take it too much to heart when people bring that up, but it has been out there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the sort of intactivists or whatever you want to call community, you know, people who 
are very often very stridently against circumcision bring up uh, lack of um, or lessening of sensation, etc. Worse sex as as a, a leading issue. I guess it could be for them. It just it, it's so far down on the, my list of problems with circumcision, having you know uh, encountered years of, of, of unbelievable pain from it. That you know, um, I, I mean, possibly yes, but uh, it, it's definitely not uh, not pride and center for me. It is interesting, just from a psychosexual kind of uh, you know analyzing Judaism from a psychosexual point, because these rabbis would get into these heated discussions about it during the Middle Ages and later about how, you know, uh, a man who's not circumcised will please his woman so much that she will not let go of his genitals. I think that's an actual quote. And so thereby he will not have time to study the Torah because he'll just be getting laid all day long and all night long, you know, and then he'll end up worse than death. Yeah, it's a fate worse than death. Truly a fate worse than death. You have sex night and day and there's going to be no Mishnah in his life. And then what? What do you got then? You know, so I don't know. I mean, I, to me, I you know, this isn't a pro or con. It's just reading that stuff is, is I, and I agree with Max that it is maybe a way of sort of, you know, sidestepping the issue and making it quasi-comical, although I don't, I don't know how comical they were, but it just goes to show you the length, so to speak, of, you know, to, to which Jewish uh, thinkers will go to either justify or ignore this. Look, in the 18, in the mid-19th century, a lot of uh, reformed Jews in, um, in Germany, which was sort of the apex of, of Jewish thought at that point, we're saying, let's let's not do this anymore. You know, not just a lot, but the leading rabbis of the reform movement. Rabbi. Um, that conversation was up there. That conversation was out there in in you know in the mid nineteenth century. But after you know, I said that some some rabbis reached out to me after my essay. But for the most part, among reform Jews, crickets. You know, among the organized community, nobody wants to talk about this. And in the 21st century, you know, we're talking about 160, 170 years after the, the, the great rabbis of Frankfurt, et cetera, had considered, you know, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should do away with this. So there's something bigger going on here. There's something, you know, there's the, 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 the fact that people who have absolutely no connection to Judaism, Shabbat, what the hell is that? You know, the fact that even they will continue to do this. There's something about masculinity in here. And, for, and, I, and just to, before I, I close here, just, you know, um, many Gentiles in the, mid, in the 19th, 18th century thought that Jews were unmanned by their circumcisions. That was sort of their spiel was, well, once they, you know, once they remove that, they don't become full men. I think this is, and remember that this originated in Egypt before the Jews started doing, before the Israelites began doing this. This was a procedure done, and it was performed on 12, 13-year-old boys, uh, noble boys, the procedure was done as a test of strength, as a test of masculinity. If you could stomach without fainting, having a piece of your penis cut off, then you were welcome into the elites of Egyptian society. So I always think that there's a masculine aspect to this that, that we don't talk about, we laugh about it now, but this is and continues to be a test of strength. It's just a question of, do we want this test of strength in the 21st century? It's interesting. So I'll both times uh, my wife and I had had a child, we chose not to know the gender in in advance. And we we had two beautiful girls. And, and I must admit, I felt a certain sense of relief at, at just not having to deal with this, with the circumcision or think about having to do anything that quickly, let alone 
something that's that's potentially traumatic, you know, traumatic to the parents. Uh, Max, you kind of described um, the Brit Mila as 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 like a an ancient gender reveal party, and 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 are wondering like, does it fit with with our modern day evolving conceptions of gender? And and I'd ask that. I guess I'll just stop there. Yeah. Well, here's a thought. Even if I believe that this was absolutely medically necessary and way better for the penis and way better to do it and optimal on the eighth day, I would still not do a brevila because of the gender issue. Um, you know, let's just forget about circumcision for one second here and just think about the ramifications of just a ritual considered by some to be the most important thing in the world that deals with penises just deals with baby penises. What if it was just, they were taking a, a yod for reading the Torah and just touching the penis, not cutting anything off. You know, for thousands of years, we've had a ritual where children born with penises have had pride of place. Um, and as much as like we can talk about how, how much harm it can also do, it also has a really profound impact on gender in the Jewish world. Um, and, and so that actually can't be left out. And, and really, for me, is an issue that I argue should be raised more. It's just it's easy to talk about the physical side, which is extremely important. But it's just the gender piece is also extremely important. OK, well, we have just another couple seconds of your time. If you're inspired or enlightened by these conversations on the podcast, on the Evolve website, in the web conversations, you can support us. There's a donate link right in our show notes. Every gift matters. Make a statement about your values and what's important to you. Make a statement in favor of nuanced, honest, groundbreaking conversations. Thanks for listening and thank you for your support. All right, back to the show. Some of the objection to circumcision around the world, I think mirrors some of some of the objection to kosher slaughtering. There is there is an element of, of anti-Semitism behind it. So how does that, you know, do you get concerned by advocating against this practice? You'd be, you'd be seen, you know, indirectly as echoing, you know, echoing the voices of those who don't have good intentions. I don't uh, worry about it too much just because of my place, like in the Jewish community and, and you know, the way I approach this, uh, you know, I, I understand because of the way I'm raised, how to have these conversations without nearing anti-Semitism. Um, it's certainly out there. I've, I've described this before. Um, I think it's very, I do think it's very difficult to talk about this issue if you're not Jewish without people labeling you as anti-Semitic, which is a problem. I think that Jews should also be receptive to legitimate criticism on this, uh, on this situation. Um, I think that uh, the connection is often made between attempts at regulating kosher slaughter and circumcision in Europe. Uh, both of those are, are on the table. It's, it's very likely, I think, that, uh, that we'll see successful legislation in one of those arenas, no matter what, um, in the future. Uh, and they're different issues, though. You know, one of them is a potential uh, human, human rights problem and the other one is is not um i think one thing i do know is that uh you know we aren't above regulation like the community has to be a partner in society 
does that, you know, I do think that there could be elements uh, of those laws which are hypocritical and could go into, it could become anti-Semitic. Um, but I think that as the medical inclination towards this act declines, you know, there's only going to be more heat in, in, uh, in the legislative arena. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we have uh, in, in Brooklyn, there were uh, Hasidic rabbis who, uh, or memorials who would perform, uh, I can't remember what it's called, Brit HaPet or something. Metzitza BePet. Metzitza BePet, thank you. My, my yeshiva days are far behind me. Uh, where, you know, where the, 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 the moil places his mouth on the penis to, to, to I guess, remove some of the blood. And uh, cases of herpes were transmitted right. uh, from moil to, to baby, one of which I believe was fatal. Uh, because at that age, herpes means something different for a child. Um, affects and, the brain, that's right. Affects the brain. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't remember which, I guess it was a city health department or some some entity stepped in as, as well it should have and said, you know, let's not do this. <laughs> don't do this anymore. So obviously there are regulations. Now, well, actually, no, I have to correct that. It, it, is, still le- it is still legal to perform oral suction uh, at the circumcisions. Um, it's it's not it, it's discouraged, but it's still legal and it's still performed. It's still legal. I thought I'd read that it was that it was, which would make sense. There, there are there are parental consent forms and, oh. and some stuff, but it's I mean it's it's very I mean it's it's something that happens in private. It's not pursued. Uh, it's discouraged, but it's legal. Well, that's I mean that's definitely a place where I would say, <laughs> obviously this is you know I know that's a part of a ritual, but obviously the same way that we monitor against other religions. Doing things that are that can be incredibly hurtful to a child, for example, not administering uh, medical aid, which some religions believe in, uh, those parents can be prosecuted in a way. Uh, obviously, depends on the jurisdiction. Yes, as a society, we do have uh, we do have rights to step in and regulate things. But you know, would a ban on circumcision work? I, I don't think I would advocate for that because I think it would go underground immediately, and it would just be performed. I mean, it already is performed by I think. Uh, uh, people who may not be fully qualified to do it, but I think it would w- open up a, a whole can of worms. I think the most important thing that we can do, and especially toward communities that aren't ultra-Orthodox, is to present all the facts uh, and then hope that things change uh, organically without having to you know, enact laws. But yes, in some circumstances, obviously, the, the, I mean, you think of those poor kids and you think of the weird psychosexual drama that, that is in, enacted when an adult places his mouth on a child's penis, you know, and, and, and you start to think, obviously there's many different strains of Judaism, but this is, this is, this is a lot, this is a lot to, to take in. I'm just, uh, I'm just curious, Gary, uh, if, uh, I, I actually agree with you. I think you need a cultural buy-in before you have any kind of effective law, you know, law, laws must, uh, must reside within cultural buy-in, but, um, you know, for negatively impacted people, let's say, you know, you know, for some of the people you've talked about or, you know, coming from your own perspective, I'd just be curious, like, do you think there should be any kind of recourse available or, or like, you know, not a ban per se, but like, have you thought about that at all? You know, there have been successful lawsuits. I think, it, yeah, I mean, there have been successful lawsuits by children who had to have uh, their gender reassigned. Um, there was a famous case, I think it was a Canadian I guess woman because she was reassigned and she lived her whole life as a woman, but it was, it never, she killed herself in the end as well. Um, and there was a, a case of uh, uh, someone like myself also came as a kid from Russia, 
This was, I believe, in the 90s. Same situation. I think possibly done even in the same horrible public hospital that I had had mine done. And that was a terribly botched circumcision. And I think they did sue the, I don't know which entities they sued, but they, they, they got a reward, I think, in the millions. Um, please check on that. But there was a very successful lawsuit and there were other successful lawsuits. So there is recourse to this. But for example, for someone like me, whose entire life has been turned upside down by this, yeah, who, do I, who would I sue at this point? It, for me, it's interesting because the major problem happened when I was seven, there was pain for about two years, and then it recurred when I was what, 48 or something like that, 47, 48, yeah, 48. So it's almost like a two-stage process, but stemming from the original process, right? Um, what would be the, I actually, my, my wife's a lawyer and I kind of brought it up to her and I was like, just almost as a joke. And she was like, eh. <laughs> she, she's not very even though she's a lawyer she's not very litigious but you know um i don't know i mean the other aspect just to continue up this conversation you know i had i went through about 12 different doctors uh i think i saw every urologist uh in manhattan i mean i sometimes i'd walk down the street and feel like half the city had seen my schlong you know it's just like just walking around i felt it was incredibly disturbing also to constantly pull down my pants and in the article, I talk about one nurse who saw the, the swollen, horrible condition that my penis was in and passed out, Faint. just fainted. I had a nurse faint, which is, you know, <laughs> that's the, the, the- Not reassuring. Not reassuring, no. <laughs> and, you know, but the thing is that many of these doctors were, of course, these urologists were Jewish and had, you know, Maimonides quotes framed in the back and all that stuff. And, and their attitude was like, eh, you know, you'll get over it. It's, it's, it's going to be fine, you know. One doctor was saying, it doesn't look so bad. You know, you, 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 you know it's, it's, it's still a good procedure. And um, uh, finally, the doctor, the one doctor that did sort of help me move from like complete invalid status to, you know, basically still have some sensation that's negative, but, but, but can live with it. Uh, also a, a Jewish doctor, but he was in, he was in Lake Success, uh, Long Island, and he specialized in pain. You know, he was, he's, a, he's the director of a pain clinic. And I found out about him through, I had to do like five different people were connecting me and, and non-neurologists at all, connecting me to other and other and other and other people. And it didn't seem like all these Jewish doctors I was seeing really, well, gave a damn in some ways. You know, it was almost like, we'll be okay. People have to pretend that botches don't exist and pretend that it's fine because no one wants to confront the issues here. So that's really not surprising. Nobody wants to confront the issues. It took somebody who specialized in pain to whom I could talk to and feel like I was actually being heard. That this wasn't like, oh, well, you know. As one of the doctors said to me, he said, yeah, these things happen, it's one, it's one in a hundred. You know, like, like this was some negligible number when it comes to, some, to, to the most sensitive part of a man's body. One in a hundred was a okay outcome. It's yeah, one of it's completely Michelle. One of my uh, contacts, someone who specializes uh, in documenting botches, um, in a in a publication, wrote that uh, you know for the person affected, the statistic means nothing. You know, the chances are one hundred percent when it's you. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think I do think people need to think about that. You know, with, with what 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 level of risk would ever be acceptable when it's your child? You know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you read the Talmud and it's, you know, it's like you're allowed not to be circumcised if I think it's one or two of the, of the, of the kids' brothers have died. <laughs> it's, the debate is between three or four. Three or four. Okay. They, they were extra careful. 
You've got two children who have bled out from circumcision. You're like, I don't know, maybe I should do a third. <laughs> we, we have an obsession with this procedure that goes beyond anything in, 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 our, in our law. It's, it's mind boggling. And that's actually a very important ancient text because, you know, while it's true that the, the major interpretation of it is that uh, they were worried about hemophiliacs. Right. Um, it's also an example of them scrutinizing this, of saying like, well, when would it be too dangerous or when when do we understand the medical situation well enough to like not take the risk? And I think that should give a hint to us that at every, I don't know, thousand year stopping point, maybe we you know, make a special counsel and, and assess, you know, I, I just want to keep hammering that home. Like there's nothing wrong with taking a hard look, you know, people, people, res if you, res I think if people resist taking the hard look, then this should, this should really go. If you can't, you know, that's a, that's an important point of integrity. Like it deserves the full weight of the, of the scrutiny of the community and the medical and the medical community. If you want to draw together a rabbinical court that has all the different, you know, different parts of Judaism, I will gladly appear and testify, and I will, I will drop my drawers for one more time and show everyone what's going on. And that would be, uh, I would do anything to, to help us get the debate moving again. I don't know if such a court <laughs> exists. <laughs> it would be interesting, Max. I'm, I'm wondering, what, like, in terms of aims, because, because, I mean. My sense is you're, I mean, you're far from, far from trying to tear down Judaism and you're, you're trying to enhance it. So can you, I mean, you're part of a group. Can you, can you tell us what, what Ruhim is and what it's, what its aims are? Yeah. So Ruhim uh, is a group that is not uh, one that takes a stance on the ethics of circumcision. It's about uh, community conversations. It's about the reality that there, are, there there's a growing number of Jews involved in the community who are foregoing or, or challenging circumcision and, uh, and that they should be fully included, um, which, I, which should be the least controversial aspect of all this. Um, you know, it's not a group that says, you know, Similar to what Gary said, it's not a group that's saying, oh, absolutely don't do it. it it's a group that uh, recognizes that there's parts of the community where people have been uh, pushed away by, uh, by this issue. Um, and also to help the community. I mean, you know, this, this is good for, for clergy and for other uh, community leaders uh, to know about an issue that's out there, to be able to engage with it. Um, between people who at this stage and point, you know, you're going to have a few people not doing it and a group of people who are doing it and they're all in the same boat. So that's what Brooklyn is about. Are there alternatives at this point? Like if folks say, I really want, you know, my son to have a, to celebrate a covenant with the Jewish people in, in community and, and not do circumcision have, have, have alternatives been, been developed like, you know, akin to a, a simchat bad, a, a female baby naming, or or gender non-binary baby naming. Absolutely, there are, there are a few out there. Um, you know, clearly uh, members of Brooklyn have uh, proposed and written a lot about Brit Shalom, which is uh, which is one type of ceremony. Um, another one that I've been speaking about, especially within the Reconstructionist context, is um, Rabbi Wechterman's uh, Brigadifa ritual, covenant of wrapping. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I think that one's great is because it's really gender neutral. 
it's not about circumcision or it's not about anything else other than uh, having a gender neutral ceremony, um, which appeals, which appeals to me. Like I, you know, no matter what child I have, you know, in the future, I want to welcome them equally. Um, there's Brit Rafitsa, which is uh, when they, uh, which is a washing ritual. There's a, there's a couple of different ideas that have been out there. Um, so that's, you know, as I've spoken about this in a couple other places, it's sort of, sort of an exciting frontier for people interested in ritual because there's possibility. Gary, I'm curious, like, does it matter to you if the liberal Jewish community gets, gets this right? Or are you kind of just done with Judaism and want to make sure that, that people, you know, more people don't suffer pain like you do, which is, which is obviously a, a, noble, a noble goal? Yeah, I mean, look, I start from the perspective that having gone through this, I don't want anyone of any, you know, religious, non-religious, whatever. I mean, pain is pain. People are people. I don't want to, which is why I start with, you know, people who are not part of religions that have uh, this as a custom. And then I move into the progressive members of those religions who may want to reconsider. So obviously I know there, there are limits uh, to, 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 I know some people will, some communities will never stop doing this. Uh, but I am culturally Jewish. I, I, you know, I, I do hope that Judaism has a, continues its incredible history, especially in, in, in America, my, my country. Um, there's so much to offer. And you know, I used to work for UJA in different capacities as a grant writer, etc. And I know that the word, the buzzword there was continuity, making sure that, 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 that Judaism continued. And to me, this is a real no-brainer. You know, if you want, given how how different, we, how much we're reconceiving what Judy, what anything is, religion, gender, all these things are up for grabs, especially among more progressive American Jews. This seems to me like a no-brainer. Like this is an issue that you want uh, to move forward on, that you want to have different voices present instead of just rotely doing what's been done for so long, even as, as you re-examine all these different things about gender, et cetera. Uh, within Judaism. So, um, and I think it's it's kind of, I feel like it's an unstoppable train. I really do admire uh, what people like Max are doing. I, I, even though I'm not part of an organized Jewish community, I, you know, as a fellow Jew, I can't help but be proud that people are uh, addressing this issue with so much eloquence and, and thought and empathy, because I think ultimately changing our minds about this will require a lot of empathy. Um, and like I said before, I'm counting on the empathy of parents before I'm counting on any form of empathy. And I'm counting on parents to, to, you know, you have this little defenseless creature before you. Um, and, and obviously that, that, that you know, that, that excites the instincts of people all over the world. But given how much Jews have written about their parents and about their children, the, you mentioned Philip Roth before, the sort of the rich tapestry of, of constantly examining our relations uh, and relationships I think that's something to consider, you know, first, first do no harm as the doctors say, but I think that's also the parents uh, first imperative as well. Would either of you attend a bris or, or, or not? I mean, I'm, I guess I'm curious. Uh, would you, would, I would I you set foot in one? I think I'm I would, sorry. I think I would pass out. Yeah. And you haven't been to one as, as an adult as far. No, I would pass out. I couldn't handle it. All the out of that in the world couldn't, uh, <laughs> Didn't get me through that one. What, what about you, Max? Remains a very difficult uh, situation for me. Um, I've certainly witnessed many of them. Um, I don't do well with them. Uh, but I believe in empathy in this situation. There are, you know, I have certain friends who've never spoken to me or anyone about this. Um, 
where it's really a non-discussion, it's really been a, a non-discussion point. Um, and I haven't really figured out how I feel about that question yet, even though uh, I struggle with it. I think it was in Tablet Magazine. I'll, I'll find the essay and put it in, in, in the show notes where um, a mother described her decision for not circumcising a second son after after circumcising the first and, and, and basically says something like, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're not Jewish because of your, because of your penis, you know, that's, that's not what makes you Jewish. So, I mean, does this at least, at least for males or maybe for everybody, does this come to the, come to the heart, you know, raise the question of what, what makes somebody Jewish, what defines Jewishness. And, and if, you know, if, if we, you know, further, you know, further splinter on these, on these basic things, does it, you know, does it make, you know, continuity or cohesion, you know, like Gary mentioned, impossible. One thing is that, that uh, Jewish community leaders and, and anyone listening to know, we're always splintering and coming back together. <laughs> You know, the history of, I wrote about this in my essay, but the history of the Jews is a group of people who pretend that they're stubborn when they're actually quite flexible. Um, you know, it's, it looks like different things in different eras and everyone at every point has, has said, this is the last generation. Um, I don't think there's any one single thing that changes that, that you take it away and then the whole ship sinks. But uh it is true that there, there's a notion out there that this somehow is that thing, that it is kind of that last straw. Um, and uh, it's, it's actually a little crazy when you really think about it. Like you're saying, if we didn't cut a baby's penis, then that'd be it. I mean, it, how strong can the group be if that's all, if that's, all that's there? You know, it, it's got to be more than that. And I, and I wanted to put out there that everything should double down on Shabbat. Gary mentioned this earlier, but these but certain rituals, which are also ancient, that have the potential to be open tent, that people can come in and out, that they could have portions of their life when it's really important, that they could define the practice, that they can, you know, make ways of inviting others in, um, Jewish and non-Jewish. To me, that's very high potential, not these like rigid, a ritual like circumcision, which actually doesn't have our participation in it. The child is not a participant. They're a passive receive, receiver of this situation. So I want, to, I want people to think about like what's active and what we can take in our hands and, and be a part of in terms of like what, and also what's ethical. It's funny that the, 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 you know, the people that were very incensed about my article, uh, including when Moyle wrote, and a rabbi slash Moyle had wrote that, you know, basically without, without a circumcision, Judaism will, will, will not be the end of it. You know, and I think it's, it's more interesting for me to, I mean, obviously that statement is so ridiculous, but it's more interesting for me to sort of probe their own psychology and, and how they grew up. I guess as a novelist, that's how I would approach it. Like, what makes you believe this? This is so important. Obviously, if you're a moral, that's also part of your livelihood, etc. But, you know, uh, why, what, what makes you so cleave so strongly to this out of all the different mitzvahs? Um, Max, Gary, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think I think we really push push the envelope in, in a lot of different areas will give listeners a lot to think about. I really appreciate it. Um, you're both fascinating people. There's there's many, many 
non-circumcision questions I'd, I'd want to ask in a discussion and, and hope, uh, hope, hope for another time. But I, I really appreciate uh, both of your time and, and insight and, and raising this important topic. Ryan, I just really wanted to thank you because uh, this is a moment in Jewish history when uh, it's a difficult, it's difficult topic to talk about. And uh, I think the Reconstructionist movement uh, has offered a lot of uh, great uh, potential to, to speak about it. The Evolve platform hosting the uh, hosting the series and also this podcast. So I just want to say thank you. Yeah, it's, it's important work. Thank you. Thank you, um, Gar and, and uh, may you both, Gary, may you continue to heal and be well. And, and uh, should I ever publish anything before, before I die? I'm, I'm coming for, for a blurb, so. <laughs> of course, anytime. Awesome. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, both of you. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Max Buckler and Gary Steingart. We will be back next month with an all-new episode, part two of our series, Rethinking Circumcision. Well, what did you think of today's episode? Did it make you rethink your positions? Was it offensive? Was it hard to listen to? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and you're part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you have. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. Evolve! Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. I will see you next time.